Hello everyone, quick notice before we begin this episode, this was an episode mainly about terrorism and about Islamic State and we described the the horrible scenes that, that went hand in hand with the actions of Islamic State and others. And these descriptions might come across for some people as graphic and as extreme, so we want to caution you before you listen to this that this might be difficult for sensitive listeners among us but if not uh, please keep listening because the conversation we had was really meaningful and really interesting so i will let peter van ostein talk in this eighth episode of extra time roll the beat roll the beat I'm a student business psychology and a TEDx organizer. And I am Miklas, student economics, law and business administration and also a TEDx organizer. And today we welcome Peter van Ostein, an historian affiliated with the research unit of Arabic studies at the KUL. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, welcome Peter and welcome to all of you listening today. This is episode 8 already. Uh, I can't believe how fast is it is going, and it's already the eighth week that we're doing this. Uh, and this week for me, I I tried to complete one of the developmental challenges a young adult has, which is getting a driver's license. Uh, I tried it this Monday. And what do you Did think? You succeed? Yeah, what do you think? I was going to ask. Did I succeed or not? I think so, because everyone succeeds uh, on the exam. Well, I'm afraid I have to let you down because I didn't. Uh, and I didn't know that everyone did. Uh, I, for, for some people, it's quite hard, I heard. It depends where you do it, I think. You have some centers where it's quite easy, uh, others where they're less severe. But yeah, the bottom line is you have to be a good driver. And I guess I'm not yet <laughs> a good driver. Uh, how, how about you, Peter? Well, at what age did you get your driver's license? I think I was already... 21 or 22 or something pretty late actually okay uh, yeah. um, i succeeded uh, the first time even though i, I nearly crashed the car but really you know, nearly crashed it. well there was a lot of fog and there was a speed bump uh, quite elevated i didn't i actually didn't see at all um yeah and uh I hit it with uh, with the right side of the car and then the examiner started calling me names that I'm a danger and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, I, I passed the exam. Wow. That's, then you were lucky, I think, because same setting today, for sure, you would, you would turn back to the exam center and uh, yeah, see you in a, in, in, in a month or so to do it yeah, again. Yeah, probably, yes. Yeah. But in any case, I, I will try practicing. And, uh, and I guess you have your, your driver's license already, Miklas, right? Yeah, but I also needed uh, three attempts, so it was not that easy to uh, <laughs> look at you and, and telling me that most people finish mm. it in one time. How judgy! No, but uh, but so that was for me the uh, the highlight of this week, my attempt, and uh, yeah, unfortunately not a successful attempt. But in any case, we're we're here today with a with a new guest already. 
And my first question for you, Peter, is, is just about what, what you do. We, we mentioned the unit of Arabic studies at the KUL, but for me, that's so broad. And I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, as a starter point, what are your main occupations of, of today? Um, well, basically, I'm, I've been working uh, independently for about a year right now. Um, <coughs> I was aiming before Corona hit uh, to participate in a big project with the Counter Extremism Project uh, led by Hans Jakob Schindler. Um, they had already promised us a budget of about 35k euro for a, for a research project into Islamic State media material. But then Corona hit and the funding disappeared as snow for the sun. So in the very first quarter of this year, I, um, I didn't, I hardly had any work actually. Um, I hardly had any income working off. If you're studying uh, jihadi studies, then there's always enough to do, um, especially when you're looking at the Islamic State. Now I'm cooperating with a spin-off of the University of Antwerp uh, called Text Game. <clears throat> in a project for the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And what we're basically are doing is building an ontology of uh, jihadi voc vocabulary. So um, every single word that is used in jihadi context gets quoted, uh, rated and coded on a four scale level, uh, four being extremely jihadi, zero being non-jihadi. Um, and I've been working on that since, well, um, I'd say, beginning of September. And the project, our aim is to get to finish the project by the end of the year. What's the exact definition of the word jihadi? Because for us, it seems so broad. So maybe you can explain. Uh... Basically, one of the biggest misconceptions about uh, Salafi Muslims, and I'm going to explain what Salafi Muslims are in a while, is that they're all jihadis. Salafi Muslims, they distinguish themselves from um, modern, or yeah, between brackets, modern Muslims, modern interpretations of Islam, by uh, following the Salaf the way that the Prophet Muhammad lived and his followers. And they dress in a, they have a particular dress code, uh, long beards, uh, jalabas, stuff like that. But then again, not every Salafi, uh, Salafi Muslim is a jihadi Muslim. You have um, uh, political uh, Salafis who basically strive to install a system based on the Sharia via politics. Uh, you have quietist jihadis, people who support violent jihad, uh, quietist Salafis, I mean, um, but not really openly. And then at the top of the ladder, you have the, the core, the, the real mujahideen, as we call them, the fighters in the holy war or holy wars, uh, as they perceive them. It's it's interesting that you that we touch on the concept of jihad because we had we organized TEDx events as well, 
And at our last event, we had a speaker uh, who is also actually part of the team this year, uh, Ali Shirazi, and he talked about jihad and the misconception that is often associated with holy war, like you said, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, but that in the in the in the Sunni uh, in the Sunni law that it's more that you have four types of jihad, and maybe you can yeah. explain a bit about those four types. Four types, I. Um... I'm afraid I only know two, the bigger jihad and the, the lesser jihad. The bigger jihad is uh, working on oneself to become a better Muslim day by day. That's basically the, the inner struggle of a, a Muslim to uh, to basically become a better Muslim, to, to pray five times a day, to follow the Sunnah and the Hadith, uh, study Quran, uh, go on Hajj, stuff like that, the usual stuff. That's the bigger jihad. The lesser jihad is what we call um, the violent struggle of these guys. Um, so the, the the type of jihad everybody knows. If you, I remember a row. What was it? Two years ago or something, when um, Secretary of State Theo Franken made fun of a girl because her first name was jihad. Um, that was a bit of a, a row on social media at that point, I noticed. Yeah. It's, the word jihad is not always necessarily um, affiliated with, with violent struggle. Of course, we all know it as such, basically because of the media reporting about it. Mm -hmm. If you look at, for example, the attack last night in uh, in Paris, where they beheaded a history teacher, yes, yes. for me that is absolutely a jihadi act uh, of violence. That, that's interesting. Is it easy for you when you see these media reportings and there's another drama that happened somewhere? Um, is it easy for you to to uh, distinguish the, um, so to say? more uh, individual attacks and the organized attacks which are associated with uh, jihadi uh, attacks is it for you easily easy to say oh this is it and this is not it well everybody knows the theory of the so-called lone wolves where people by themselves um, decide to act com uh, to uh, commit an act of violence like the guy from uh, yesterday probably However, um, I don't like the theory of lone wolves because there's no such thing. Um, you have directed attacks, such as the attacks in Paris and Brussels that were directed straight on from the, the top of the Islamic State uh, and ordered by them uh, and financed and go on and go on. And then you have inspired attacks, basically people who have been in contact or not really have been in contact, but have been following, um, uh, let's say, ISIS media and become inspired by uh, these ISIS uh, media uh, um, posts to commit violence of their own. Mm. And then you have uh, somewhere in between the networked attacks, uh, that's basically when um, a, a jihadi on the field in Iraq or Syria or whatever gets in contact with some guys and basically says, well, uh, it's up to you to attack uh, non-Muslims. Uh, most of these contacts have been uh, via social media. 
there's one clear example of that, Rashid Kassim, a uh, French foreign fighter uh, killed in the meantime. He ordered several um, networked attacks in, uh, in France. For example, the, the killing of a priest in northern Normandy a few years ago, an attempted attack on the Notre Dame. Mm. Uh, the killing of a couple of police officers, um, stuff like that. He was in contact with all of these guys individually. The guys who eventually killed the priest in Normandy, they hadn't uh, known or hadn't talked uh, to each other before the attack. The only way that they were connected it was via Rashid, uh, Rashid Kassim. So then he was the clear in, in between person. Um, yeah. Uh, a clear example of a networked attack. You, we, you mentioned a lot ISIS and Islamic State, and I think the perception with many people is, uh, maybe with Miklas as well, but for sure with me, that these, uh, this problematic organization is on, on a less essential point in the, in the troubles of this world today than it was, for example, uh, a year ago when it was more in the media, or I don't know when it was especially in the media, but it feels like um, I have the perception that this problem is uh, for the large part over, but am I mistaken in this perception? Definitely. Okay. Ever since the fall of Baruz, <clears throat> small town uh, at the border of Syria and Iraq, where the last uh, remnants of the Islamic State soldiers uh, hurtled together, there have been um, misconceptions again on the existence of uh, or the, the the future of the Islamic State. Everybody thought the Islamic State was defeated and um, everything was so as going back to normal. Actually, it isn't at all. Um, if you look, for example, in Syria or Iraq, about daily uh, ISIS media, mainly via Telegram. Uh, via channels called Nashir News Agency. They claim attacks in both Syria and Iraq. Two or three days ago, they even claimed their very first attack inside the country of Tanzania. There has been um, a serious increase since early 2019 of attacks inside Africa and mainly in uh, the region around Lake Chad. Uh, so that's Niger, Nigeria, uh, Chad, Mali, stuff like that. Um, and then also we have a branch of the Islamic State that operates in uh, Congo. And the same branch is also operational in uh, Mozambique. And this branch from Mozambique, they crossed the border with Tanzania and basically killed a, a number of soldiers there and took, uh, yeah, presumably, a serious amount of Lloyd. So it's still there, the, the, prob the problem, but it's going somewhere else and it's... Uh... Well, basically the situation in Syria and Iraq changed completely after the fall of Barroso. Obviously, the Islamic State doesn't control any territory anymore, uh, except for some patches of desert uh, in Syria or Iraq. Uh, but they, they continue their, their insurgency and they changed back from what was a global jihadi 
group, basically an army. You can definitely call it, call it an army at some point. And they changed back to their former tactics, tactics of being a jihadi insurgency group. So small hits on um, mayors of villages, outposts of, of the Iraqi or the Syrian army, fake checkpoints, kidnappings, ransom, stuff like that. And what exactly does ISIS want to achieve with uh, these attacks? Like, that's not even in, in their own country to expand their territory, but they randomly do attacks in other countries, in all, like in Tanzania, why? Well, it's another misconception. Iraq and Syria isn't their country at all. Uh, that's where the group originated in Iraq. Um, when the Syrian war began, they uh, uh, swiftly jumped on and uh, joined the war against Bashar al-Assad. Uh, but it isn't really regarded as their country at all, because basically the name of um, ISIS was a Dawlat al-Iraqi, uh, Dawlat al-Islamiyah fil Iraq wa Sham, ISIS. Uh, everybody talks about Daesh or even Daesh in some cases. Basically, Daesh is just an acronym for the, the, the Arabic name. Um, at that point, they were kind of mm, more or less nationally involved uh, because they, they explicitly mentioned Syria and Iraq in their name. After the 29th of June 20, uh, 2014, when Abu Muhammad al-Adnani, the uh, former spokesman of the Islamic State, um, declared the caliphate, they were going global. They were just calling themselves Dawlat al-Islamiyah, the Islamic State. And what the Islamic State has been doing in uh, Syria, Iraq, but also what they're doing right now in uh, Nigeria, Mozambique, Tanzania, Congo, that is weakening uh, the state as the state structures as such. Um, and then fill up the hole, uh, if you understand. They they want. They're following a theory called the management of savagery that was formulated in the early 2000s by one Abu Bakr Naji, who basically set out a, um, a plan in in um, I think it was around seven or eight stages to gain control over a country. Um, that basically existed in the fact that, first of all, you should destabilize a country by, by attacks, um, take down soldiers, uh, create a form of anarchy um, to make sure that the population is, is willing to turn another way, and then fill up, filling up that hole uh, by the Islamic States. Um, um, well, theory of control, as I guess you must call it. Basically, what the Islamic State is, has been doing uh, since the years is rather different from how Al-Qaeda is operating. Al-Qaeda always goes, or mostly goes for the hearts and minds of the population and then try to convince them through speeches, uh, through an easy approach uh, to join the, uh, the insurgency. 
Um, what ISIS did was basically they conquered the territory and they immediately applied the Sharia uh, in the most brutal form. Uh, we all probably remember that 2013-14, the internet was, um, yeah, quite full of pictures of beheadings, yes. uh, crucifixions, uh, amputations. Uh, everybody remembers, I guess, the horrible death of the Jordanian pilot Moasad Kassasbe, who was burned alive and then buried in a cage under rubble. Um, stuff like that. That's, that's how the Islamic State was operating, to install fear, chaos, terror in uh, the hearts of people and then taking over control of the territory. If, if we see all this, all this horror, and like you mentioned, especially in, in the period of 2014, um, I think a lot of people ask themselves, how is this still tied to, to uh, in, in any form to religion and to, uh, we have the jihadi concepts, but isn't this a complete misuse of what the religion is all about? And I think the obvious answer is yes, but could you elaborate on that? Well, for us, the obvious answer is yes, but don't forget that, for example, in a country like Saudi Arabia, the Hudud, the Islamic penal law is also still in, uh, active. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, the last few years, there have been even beheadings of women uh, for misconduct. If I just take one example of Islamic law and um, focusing on penal law, then you have the Hudud, uh, literally the, the borders set, set out by, by the Prophet. Um, there are, I think, five of them. I'm not going to name them all, but you know. Zina, um, that is when you uh, cheat on your, uh, on your spouse, that's uh, punishable by, by stoning you to death. Uh, Hayraba, theft, uh, right hand gets amputated. Um, uh, one brigandry, I don't know exactly, I don't remember the exact name in, in Arabic, uh, it's basically what we in Dutch call Strakrovere. I don't know exactly how to translate that. Um, yeah, it's like uh, uh, thieves along the road, like, uh, yeah, something like that. people, yeah. Well, basically the, the highway robbery. Yeah, highway robbery. The, the punishment for that would be uh, the amputation of the right arm and the left leg and then crucifixion of the rest. And I saw examples of that Jesus. being applied. And, and, that, and this is all uh, dictated by by what? This, this is classic. This is classical Arabic uh, theology, which is in the Quran and in the Hadith. Um, the most perfect example is one that is not in uh, um, one of the punishments. It's not part of of uh, the Hudud, but uh, for most people is is Kisas. Kisas is equal retaliation. Uh, for example, when they burned the, the Jordanian pilot I, I mentioned earlier, uh, they basically said, they explained why they, they killed him in, in such a way. They said that basically this guy, he had been bombing innocent Muslims uh, from his jet. 
dropping bombs on their houses, burning them alive and burying them under the rubble of their own house. So the only fit way the Islamic State saw was to burn him alive and then bury him under rubble. Pure revenge, yeah. Yeah, pure revenge, an eye for an eye. But how, how do you explain then for the, the women who are like, according to me, unjustified uh, stones by, by, uh, because they are too um, opposing to the government and they uh, don't have freedom of speech. So that's not an exact compensation, right? No, no. Well, I don't know exactly what you're referring to, what examples there are, but uh, basically also the burning as such, if we continue on that topic, has nothing to do with Islam, because in the Quran it is written that only Allah can, uh, can punish with fire. And how, where does it come from, the, those cruel punishments? Yeah, don't forget that the Islam was concepted in the seventh century in a tribal environment where basically you needed harsh uh, adjustment and harsh punishment. Yeah, but also it was also here in, in, in Europe, there were the, the punishments were also cruel, but it, there was an evolution here. And how come there was there no evolution in punishments? Uh, that would be bida. Um, bida in Arabic means innovation, and innovation in religion is stricto sensu in Islamic law forbidden. So basically, it also explains, as I, as I explained before, the Salaf, um, Salafi, they follow uh, the companions or the, 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 the guidelines of the prophet and, and his direct followers. So they go back to 7th century laws and they explain their whole view of the world and religion and uh, penal law all in that context of which they say it cannot evolve because it is the, 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 the word of God and you cannot change the word of God. Up, up, until, up until this point, we, we talked about the religion as, as having hor horrible aspects in, in their essential uh, documents, which is the, the Quran, but uh, a mission of, of our friend Ali Shirazi, which, who I mentioned before, is that he wants to show uh, to people that this is a minority and, and that the, the religion in itself uh, contains obviously a vast majority of people who, who absolutely do not agree with... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so ISIS basically abused uh, Quran and Hadith um, so that it fits in, in their uh, insane worldview to explain why they burn people alive, to explain why they throw... Um, uh, homophiles from from top from buildings as they did it as well. It's another punishment that is mentioned in the Quran. I think once or twice. Uh, that's how uh, the people of Lut were punished in the early days. But they basically abused the the tradition 
um, and adapted so that it would fit perfectly with their worldview. If the Islamic State, for example, is uh, quoting from the Quran or the Hadith, they usually refer to Quranic texts correctly, but they only paste, uh, copy paste, I should say, a little piece of a verse, let's say, and they shall be killed, and they use a title for a propaganda video. Basically, in the Quran, if you go look look up that that specific uh, specific line of text in the Quran, then the and they shall be killed would be followed by unless they blah 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 blah. So, are you saying they they use a misinterpretation of the the Quran to exercise power? Yes, in a way, yes. They have their own interpretation of Islam, uh, and they force their own very strict interpretation of that to the people they control. How, how could these organizations then, then still have foothold? How could they still have resources, materials and weapons if clearly most of what they do is incompatible with a decent way of living, uh, a decent human way of living? Uh, well, how they control the people? By, by just imp uh, applying terror. That's simple. And uh, they text people. Um, every everybody had to pay a tax to the Islamic State, so they that's uh, where their income came from. Um, don't forget then that when in I think 2013 the Islamic State conquered Mosul, they robbed the central bank, um, and they gained around 400 million dollars, I think. Uh, at a certain point, it was said that the, the Islamic State, at their height, had a yearly budget of around two billion. Um, so if, uh, they they were quite capable of uh, um, of taking control over over territories and taxing the people in there, uh, capturing weapons uh, when they captured Mosul again. Uh, the Iraqi army fled and they left basically all their material there. So American weapons, American Humvees, uh, whatever you can dream of was basically suddenly in the possession of the Islamic State and then transported to Syria to uh, aid the war efforts there. I think then, then it's essential uh, to, to um, distinguish these um, the small population of, of terrorists from the religion itself in general and that's the the first i think stereotype that many people have uh who associate who associate islam with a violent religion yes that's the first thing that needs to be debunked i think especially when you see yeah them. definitely definitely because especially, when yeah. at a certain point after the attacks in paris our belgian government said that the muslim executive the the, the, the organ that is controlling all, all muslim organizations in uh, in Belgium should distance itself from the violence of the Islamic State and they, they were like, what the fuck should we, why should we distance ourselves from an organization that we even don't uh, recognize? We, we have no affiliations with uh, that type of Islam. Why should we as Muslims feel bad for what a small minor, minority of gangster jihadis at a certain point uh, are doing? 
Don't forget, if I mention gangster jihadis, I mean the guys who who attacked uh, in in uh, Paris and uh, and Brussels. Uh, very clearly, the whole gang around um, Zerkani <coughs> and uh, Abaoud, for example, they all had a criminal background, and they were using their criminal background to uh, basically aid the uh, their agenda to to propagate their agenda. The, the the they had the networks here in Brussels to find cars, uh, safe houses, weapons, money. Uh, to execute the attacks in Paris and later in Brussels. That's often often overlooked as well, the role of, of these real criminal guys who basically saw an opportunity to go to the Middle East and um, you know, to join an orgy of blood and violence. Uh, that was their own, their own purpose. The most, the most victims of ISIS are actually Muslim, so... Yes, actually. Yeah. Just a very small minority is, is a European or, or a Western. Yeah, and that's something we, we, we should stress because there's a whole um, stream of intellectuals who think that in, in the fundaments of the religion, uh, the, the Islamic religion is not compatible with Western values. Uh, in, in the broadest sense, and I think that's, and, and I look at you, Peter, but I think that's not true if we look at the religion, and that has to be nuanced, and, and this would be a ideal place to do that. And to, so okay. I want to draw the conversation more to the religion in itself and what it stands for. Well, basically, you have excesses in every single religion. Don't forget that we, in the Middle Ages, um, we had the, the, the Crusades on the Qatars, we had the Crusades in, in the, the so-called Holy Land. At a certain point when the Crusaders arrived in uh, the village of Maharat and Uman, they didn't have any food anymore, so what did they do? They first ate the dogs of the village, and then they started uh, basically killing and eating everybody alive in the village. Babies were roasted at the spit and, uh, and eat, eaten. And we speak of a massacre of thousands of people uh, in Arat and Oman. Basically, what they did then, the Crusaders, they sent a letter of um, pardon, excuses to the Pope, in which they said, sorry that we had to eat Muslims, but we, were, we ran out of dogs. And the Pope said, ego te absolvo. I forgive you. But also, maybe every society has a has access is like also capitalism is actually based on colonialism and mass murders sometimes we forget those things mm, yeah that's true we have access in as you said throughout all the whole of history we have seen um, um yeah terror <laughs> appearing uh if you look at for example the nazi ideology uh, it's maybe one of the clearest examples in our near future, uh, near history that uh, we can look at how indistinctively that they basically murdered every single Jew, Polish captive, Russian soldiers, whatever. I, that's, that's a clear example. Another example is the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Um, what the Khmer Rouge actually did, I visited Cambodia a few years ago. I saw the killing fields, I saw the prison of uh, 12 Slang, 
I can assure you, if you walk that ground and if you, at a certain point when I was walking there, I, it had rained the day before, so the, 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 the soil was moist um, and I was stepping back to take a picture and at a certain point I, I stepped into something. I didn't know what it was, but then I saw that my right foot was basically in somebody's ribcage. Um, I just stepped on a on a corpse, and I I fell through. <laughs> That's and, and why did you go, go to visit uh, that that scene there? What was the reason? Well, that was my honeymoon, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, just I'm interested. Is, is that part of your uh, philosophy as a researcher to to go on the scene itself and to see it? Have you done that a lot? Uh. No, I had the opportunity in Cambodia, um, but I'm not a, um, how should I say? Uh, not in the ramp, field. Ramp tourist, I get the, the point. I'm, I'm not going to places just for seeing disasters or whatever. In 2013, I was close to having um, to getting protection from uh, a Dutch uh, leader of Jabhat al-Nusra, then affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Uh, they were basically offering me a free conduct under the protection of Al-Qaeda in Syria to Syria to see whatever was, was going on there with my own eyes. I was doubting for a long time whether I should do it or not, but then at the end when I decided if I get the papers, uh, I will do it. And then my contact in Syria got killed. So I lost. But I would have done that, yes. I would have gone to Syria to, to basically see what, well, basically what my eye on, on uh, my eyes on, on, on the conflict in Syria and Iraq have always been social media. I've, I've, I've been following fighters, I've been following activists, journalists on the field. Uh, basically everybody at a certain point even other researchers had questions about my affiliations i'm sorry for my cat yes he wants to be part of the conversation yes um that i was too close to certain certain uh, foreign fighters and in some cases that was true i had a few dutch guys who i was really close with i talked with them daily not only about operations on the field, but also about their da daily life, about the economic situation, uh, I, a variety of things. And those were really interesting contacts because then you had somebody who had been living in The Hague, for example, for all his life, suddenly migrating to Syria and becoming a jihadi foreign fighter. Is it because, sorry? What's what's the biggest motivation for those guys to go to Syria? Is it because they want to belong to a group? It's, it's not one of it's one of the biggest motivations. There's no such thing as the biggest motivation. But if you look at, for example, Sharia for Belgium, at a certain point they were saying that um, we, as Moroccan Muslims, we don't belong anywhere. We are seen as outstanders here in Belgium. Um, we are not appreciated. Uh, we don't have a place in society. We're 
constantly discriminated. Um, we have no, I, I, we don't uh, fit in. But then if we go to Morocco, they see us as Belgians, where yeah. we also don't fit in because we grew up in Belgium. So it's a lack so of identity. We, so, so we belong nowhere. So what do we do? We go to a place where there is brotherhood. And brotherhood was one of the uh, adagia of, of the Islamic State. Uh, everybody was equal in the Islamic State. That was part of the principal part of their media propaganda that every single Muslim who doesn't feel fit at home should come over to Syria and Iraq to take a place as an equal Muslim in an Islamic State that is just and fair for all. That was the promise the Islamic State made. And why don't they fit in here in, in Belgium? What's the main reason? Yeah, I guess you shouldn't, you shouldn't ask me. I'm not a Muslim. Yeah, but I guess racism and stereotype, uh, like Muslims are stereotyped here in Europe. And and why do we do that? Because maybe we can create one identity in Belgium as, as a Belgian, well, where everyone is welcome. Yeah, well, basically, I think we already missed that boat uh, by forbidding the wearing of uh, the religious symbols when you're in um, uh, in government office. Uh, not wearing the headscarf, the idiotic discussion we had a few years back on the Burkini, if you remember that. Um, the slaughtering, the halal slaughtering um, at the end of uh, Ramadan, and go on and go on and go on. We already took a lot of measures, and France is, is, is one of the very first countries to go even a step beyond that. I'm basically saying Macron is, is, is now, he's not using the word, but he's waging a war on, on his uh, crusade on. Um, radical Islam um, that has to do obviously with one of the French um, principles of laicite um, now laicite is not compatible with Salafi uh, Islam what, what is what is exactly laicity laicite yeah. um, Oh, it's just a French word. Yeah, yeah laïcité, oui. Yeah, I, I, don't I, don't know. Know. I, I don't know how to translate it in English, so, sorry. Maybe in Dutch? Laken, Lakenstadt. Oh yeah, a layman, that, layman's state. Yeah, something like that, yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, you obviously, you know a lot about this and you are also, you were engaged in the field as we've discussed and you talked to young people who went over to to uh, to join these organizations uh, from the Netherlands and from other places as well what what is for you the why of, of doing this why are you so engaged in this topic uh, that's a long story basically when I grew up um, you should know that as a baby I lived in Saudi Arabia for almost a year so when we came back, my parents brought a lot of stuff from, from Saudi Arabia, like uh, calligraphy, uh, carpets, uh, right, 
name it. I grew up in a house that was loaded with, with Arabic, traditional Arabic uh, design. Um, I got intrigued by that. And then when I studied history first, um, I immediately chose as my uh, subject for my dissertation, the Crusades. Um, and especially the period of the Counter Crusades. The period of the Counter Crusades, you can see, is the period in which three rulers uh, changed the path of history of the, of the Islamic world. Imad al-Din Zengi, his son Nur al-Din Zengi, and then um, his follower of Salah al-Din al-Ayubi. Salah al-Din al-Ayubi, basically, he... Um, he conquered Jerusalem on the 4th of October, 1187, uh, on the Crusaders, um, almost 90 years after, um, after Jerusalem was con conquered by the armies of Gottfried of Bouillon and uh, all the other guys around him, where Godfrey of Bouillon slaughtered all Muslims inside the city and there are stories that the the horses in the church of the holy sepulcher were bathing in in knee deep in blood um salah Adin basically he set everybody free as long as they paid the ransom but just to say there was a big difference in in the approach if you look at the whole period of the counter crusades that can be regarded as a period of, of jihad, holy war. Uh, if there's one guy in history that uh, that we refer to when we talk we talk about holy war, then it's Saladin. Um, so I wrote my first dissertation on Saladin, and then I asked my parents if I could go for another one in Arabic and Islamic studies. So I wrote, I, I learned Arabic, and I wrote another dissertation on Salah al-Din al What age was this? What, eh? age, what age, at what age did you do this? I started studying uh, at 18 as everybody. Um, and then when I was 22, I, um, I started for another two years. Uh, sorry, four years. So out of your out of your well, spent eight years of studying at at, uh, at the university, and I'm I'm back now with vengeance. Yeah, and and, and rooted in into your uh, lifelong interest in in the matter, partly because of the the period that you spent there in in your youth, and the fast the fascination really started there for you. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but then the, we also saw because we we looked you up obviously before this. And uh, and we saw you had also a period uh, in your career that you were more uh, in in the business world and less in the. Yeah. Uh, what was the the cause of, of this change of of direction? Uh, because it, as I hear it, it was your lifelong passion, the Arabic studies, and uh, and then then early in your career you you changed. And what was the cause of that? Well, my very first job was teaching Arabic in. Um... In, in prisons. Um, I was teaching Arabic in the prisons of Mechelen and Leuven. Um, but my um, my week wasn't full, if you, if you understand me. I was only teaching for like six hours or eight hours a week. You can't make a living of that. 
at a certain point, my father, who was then working um, as a, uh, how should I call it? Um, head of the department of the head of the technical department of the land in uh, Eastern Flanders. He pointed me to a job uh, at the headquarters of the land in, yeah, sorry for the cat. Yeah, it's uh, um, he basically told me that there was a job in um, at the headquarters of the land in Mechelen. It was like basically two kilometers from home for me. And I took the opportunity and then basically got stuck there. Um, I've had an, yeah, I've had almost a career of 15 years at the land, evolving from, from contact center manager to being responsible for innovative technologies. Um, I was the father of SMS ticketing, for example. Okay. And That's the very first like new website of the land. Um, and at the end, I, from innovative technologies, I suddenly became a business analyst. So the, the, the linking pin between business and ICT. And then even later on, I evolved to being a solution arch architect, um, an IT architect. Not that I know anything about it, um, but during the, the course of years, I, I had picked up um, a lot about it. And then in, at a certain point, last few years, I was already always looking for funding for my PhD because combining my full-time work in uh, the IT department of the land uh, um, and that combined with my PhD, it was undoable. Um, I never found any funding for my PhD, so I'm completely self-reliable on that. Uh, but I agreed uh, with the land that I would leave at a certain point and, and that would have probably been the best decision they and I have ever made. And now I'm completely focused on, um, on GRD research. And what, uh, how do you see the future uh, evolving in, in jihadi? Do you, do you think it will, it will change a lot in the near future? And what's the impact of the coronavirus on, on, on the uh, jihadism? The coronavirus, as they perceive it, at least that was so in the very beginning of the crisis, is a punishment of God. That's how they said it. And they can't get sick because it's a punishment of God. And why should God punish them? Because they are uh, perfect Muslims. That was really the how they, they, they worded it. Um, at this point, the coronavirus, yeah, there's not so much attention to it anymore in jihadi circles, but at least one guy has been arrested, one uh, long-time jihadi has been arrested because he was basically under the guise of a facial mask uh, coming back to Europe and uh, pretending to be uh, just a tourist. How do I see the future? Well, the future will evolve as it's happened since the 1980s. If we look back at the, his, uh, the roots of uh, current modern jihadism, we see waves 
we see it going up and down. We had um, Abdallah Azam, the godfather of, of global jihad. Um, we had Osama bin Laden. Um, we had Abu Musa al-Sarqawi, the, the original founder of what now is the Islamic State. Um, we saw the rise, sudden rise of Al-Qaeda um, in Afghanistan. Um, we had the attacks of 9-11. And basically it's a cyclical involvement. It's, it's coming back every decade or so. So it won't go away. It's something that won't stop. Absolutely not. Uh, it will, the problem will linger on for, for the next few decades. That's, that's not a, a pretty positive image, uh, I must say. Um, what, what could be the, because you say it's, it's recurring anyway, so a reaction could be, why should we act against it if it's bound to, be re to recur every decade? I'm not going to directly answer your question, but I'm going to point to an observation I made where after the, the Paris and the Brussels attacks, when uh, our um, Minister of, of uh, Interior and uh, Security said, we have to cl clean up Molenbeek. We have to clean up this uh, hellhole, as President Trump called it. So what would they start doing? They started arresting people who uh, were illegal in the country. They started closing down uh, shady bars where probably drugs were, sell, were sold. Um, looking at, at people who, who were fraudless uh, with their... Uh, damn, I can't find the word. Fraudless about the place where they were living. Stuff like that. this. Uh, but Instead, we should have invested in Molenbeek. Uh, we, we see now that, for example, in the midst of the corona crisis, Molenbeek is one of the most infected places in Belgium. Mm. If we would have invested in cleaning up the neighborhood by investing in cleaning up the streets, social security, housing, um, education, stuff like that, to create an inclusive society and not just say, okay, that's a part of Brussels we don't want anything to do with, and we turn, our, we turn a blind eye, and it's going to recur. The very first government, uh, the, the, the last government before, the, before NVA came to power, led by Elio de Rupo, they turned a blind eye on Sharia for Belgium. They said, if Sharia for Belgium, if these guys want to leave for Syria, let them, problem solved. Well, not at all. Last time I heard the figures was that there are still around 100 to 150 Belgian fighters unaccounted for. We don't even know where they are right now. The problem here in Belgium was we had per capita Strangely enough, but Belgium at a certain point had the most jihadi foreign fighters of any land, any nation worldwide. Really? So, so the, what you're saying is, um, yeah, the, so as an answer to my question, we shouldn't do nothing. That's, that's 
basically the takeaway here because my question was yeah it's recurring anyway but doing nothing is also not a solution because like like you said the the Elio di Rupo did nothing about it and it made it worse obviously mm. but maybe then the takeaway is to tackle not directly but the root of the problem which is inclusion which is again people feeling a part of a community a community and uh, and not feeling left out on on their home country and the country that they're trying to integrate right now like we talked about the 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 boy from uh, from den haag um that's the essential rooted problem and maybe that's where we should tackle it to break the cycle maybe a question for you do you think we can break the cycle i don't know um after the paris and brussels attacks i um i had contacts contacts with our government and basically what i proposed to them was to um, form multidisciplinary teams, not only consisting of historians, Arabists, people who definitely have a grasp of the, uh, the jihadi problem as such, but also anthropologists and teachers of, of, uh, of Islam. So we could team up if, if you, you can't expect from a historian and an Arabist that he's going to solve the problem. Mm. Not alone. We need multidisciplinary teams, psychologists, anthropologists, go on. We need to put these people together to, in cooperation with the, with the Muslim world, obviously. We can't just say, here's a plan, this is how we are going to de-radicalize you Muslims. That won't be expected, accepted. We have to, to work together to see how we can improve the level of education, especially that. I think that's one of the biggest problems. If you look at, for example, the, the Moroccan community here in Mechelen, um, most of them are not really well educated. Mm. Uh, is it because they didn't have the chance? Is it because we discriminated them? Is it because the family culture just doesn't really hold it up high? There is a variety of reasons, but we should try to tackle a lot of problems. It's not just one thing that we can point to. Is there an example of location where the problem is tackled? Is there a good example? In the past few years, <clears throat> people have been pointing to the city of Aarhus in um, Denmark, the so-called Aarhus model. Mm. And they believe, at, at, at least that's what I heard in the past years, that it works. They reintegrated jihadis, um, they gave them a job, they gave them a house, they gave them a place in society instead of locking them up. Well, that's cuddling jihadis. Obviously, these guys are content now because they have money, they have a job, they have a car, they, they have what they need. Um, and here in, in, for example, Netherlands and Belgium, we convinced them to several years in prison and we locked them up. 
it has to be something in between. You can't just expect from society, not even in Argos, to welcome your ex-neighbor who just came back from Syria, who beheaded three people, for example. And just Was there a back. prevention policy in Aarhus as well? Hmm? Is there a prevention, uh, a prevention program in the, in Denmark in Aarhus? Uh, probably. I don't know the whole model. I didn't study it in in, in counter extremism. Is not my focus. I focus on the extremism as such. I'm not really into the finding out counter. Uh, measures and, and theoretic, theoretical models and stuff like that. I just basically look at the core of the problem. I try to understand the problem as such. I'm not going to say you should do this or you should do that. But what I've seen is that Arvus works for some people, for others it, it doesn't. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, countries like Iraq, for example where they say that if you have once, uh, once been a member of the Islamic State, uh, you should be killed. They get the death penalty in most of the cases. Whereas here in Belgium, if, you, if they only know that you have been a member of the Islamic State without having any evidence that you have actually killed people there or have committed war crimes, and you can only get five years maximum. Hmm. So there's a, the discrepancy is is enormous in the in the United States. If you get caught for even for mental support to the Islamic State, you can get sentenced to to twenty years. Yeah. Are are you a religious person? Um, no, not not really. I've I've been raised as a Catholic. Um, the family of my father was extremely religious. Um, when my father died, yeah, obviously, then you start looking for answers. But I'm not really religious. But I am. I, I have respect for religion as such yes because it was i think etienne vermeers who said um that everyone should there's no right or wrong answer on on should you be religious or not everyone should extensively study it for themselves and see whether it fits them or not and you have ex, uh, extensively studied it and for you the the answer is to be then an atheist i assume or no not really okay no, I've, I've, I don't know how to explain it, but, but I, I'm not going to say that I'm a Catholic. I'm not, I've, I haven't visited church since my father's burial, for example. No, I visited church to burn a candle for him, but that's it's basically a form of respect. That's not a religious act, I think. But really religious, I don't, I, I avoid... Um, talks about religion in general really that's that's weird like yeah well your, your expertise there's, there's another there's another aspect about it if you for example today i tweeted i retweeted um 
some pages from uh, Quran in Arabic and Chinese. I, I love that stuff. I, I, all that ancient stuff. I have studied religion extensively, but calling myself religious would be a step too far. But I, I deeply respect people who say that I'm a Salafi Muslim, I want to go back to the roots of my religion, um, and therefore I follow the, the Sunnah and the Hadith. Perfectly fine for me, go ahead. That's your own, that's your way of, of um, dealing with life. You respect, you respect the tradition, but not necessarily have to take part of it. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think religion will re-enter uh, Europe or the Western civilization as a whole? No. <laughs> That's clear. <No. laughs> that boat has left long ago. But you see, what's interesting, you see on many on many parts. Because the, the whole thing is there there's for sure life used to be between brackets simple because you uh, you lived your life, you were uh, more Catholic than, than you are today, and at the end of your life you, you get your seventh sacrament and then you're you're forgiven and you can rest in peace. Right now, having that gap, lots of people feel more, I think, the, the nihilism creeping up upon them up on them and they they struggle to find meaning and i think that's the the gap that religion has left and right now we see some some other creative ways in, in which yeah the search for meaning. for example the anti-vaxxers the yeah. anti-vaxxers in the united states in in the netherlands and here in belgium that that's for me that's a new kind of religion they are nationalists yeah in a way you are extreme nationalists not just national i'm a nationalist i'm a uh, i'm foreign independent flanders for example mm. why not mm. but i don't associate myself with um flans blank clearly not i i despise these guys but in the end what i want is to to have an independent flanders maybe even even, even an independent mechelen it was like that in the, in the Middle Ages. Why shouldn't it be again? <laughs> Mechelen. So, uh, so I guess you're based in Mechelen, uh, if I hear it. Uh, yes. Yeah, okay, obviously. Um, clo closing with a question, turn, turning back on religion, I, I wonder, do you have a message for our audience out, out there that really could... could dampen the image that most people have about the Islam, like a message that you have to people uh, to minimize the stereotypes that are in society today, what would be that message for them? Read. To read, to understand. Knowledge is everything. Um, you have to know what you're talking about. If you're just screaming hollow words about Islam and they're all terrorists and they are the ones who are responsible for the coronavirus steep uprising in Belgium because they don't speak our language and they don't look at the Belgian TV. Damn, stop that shit. Uh, why don't you just go over to your, your neighbor who might be Moroccan and try to talk with them? Um, I've had a lot of Moroccan friends here in Mechelen. Uh, some ended up in prison, some ended up in Syria, but 
at least they we talked, we interacted, we respected each other, we uh, well, we we understood each other's culture. Uh, I think that's essential. And um, I don't know if it is the best example, but it's a good example. My um, late supervisor um, at uh, Karel Leuven Urbain Vermeulen. He wrote, he wrote a book, uh, if I'm not mistaken, about Islam and Christendom. It's really thin, but it really gives you an idea, grasp of, of, of the, the problems. I can go deeper. Eh? I, can, I can recommend you several books to, to read, but I don't think that the majority of the public would be interested into spending weeks and weeks and weeks of studying Islam and the relationship with uh, Christianity. Paul van Ostein, uh, uh, Peter van Ostein, sorry. Thank yeah, you. Paul, Paul, was, Paul is my uncle and he was a former uh, relative. Really? Yes. Okay, okay. That's interesting. So, uh, so I correct, I stand corrected, Peter van Ostein. Thank you very much for, for this discussion and, and these, these interesting and uh, meaningful uh, message that you give to people uh, here at the end of the podcast. Uh, tell maybe uh, the people where they can follow you, where they can follow your activity. Um, well, basically, everybody can follow. Just type in my name on Google and you will find a shitload of links. Uh, <laughs> I'm act mostly active on Twitter, but I also have published quite a number of papers. I do have my own website which has restricted access um, after the, the Paris attacks. I had to close down my website because um, jihadis were basically looking at jihadi material on my website. That was not mm -hmm. good. Um, so, okay, on, on the pages that you can get access uh, or, or that... Yeah, you can get access on my website as well. If you just follow the procedure by WordPress and ask for an, uh, a login account, I will I, I generally allow everybody in. I even have jihadi ideologues that have a login account on my, on my website. I don't even, I don't care. I don't discriminate people by race, culture or religion. Perfect. So go to those uh, shitload of links and, and, then, uh, and then look up Peter van Ostein. And again, thank you very much for this conversation, Peter. Yeah, most welcome. See you guys. Cheers. Yep. This was season two, episode four, with Peter van Ostein, historian in Arabic studies at the KUL. It uh, pleases us to see how our audience is expanding across all kinds of different countries around the world. And yeah, next week we will be back, hopefully in a new studio with professional recording material. We are working on this and uh, we are already looking forward to it. So thank you for listening. And next week we will be back with a new exciting guest. The music was composed by Paul de Pitt. And I also really want to thank our producer, Patisse de Vos, who does a lot of work behind the screens.